Hello, everyone. Thank you. And thank you, Steve, for that preparation. I want to thank you all for spending time with us in worship, because I know that there are a lot of other options available for all of us in how you could spend that time. So it means a lot to us that we have this many people gathering together, even virtually, to focus on what is vital and important in our lives, which is studying God's word and worshiping God. So thank you for that. We're continuing in our study today, July 26th, in 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 3. So hopefully you've got a Bible there, and it's open, and you can leave it open to 1 Corinthians 3. We're going to be tackling another small segment of verses right there in order to get a feel for where we're going as Paul transitions from a couple of his analogies into a little more explanation. He's getting a little more tightly focused on his analogy about Paul the builder, because he's trying to show what he means. He's expanding his analogy a little bit and showing how we together become the temple of God. One of my uh, short-lived jobs right after I got married to Joy was working for a company that manufactured and installed closet doors in new housing tracks. And I got to go out with one of the installers one day instead of working in the factory where I was just hammering rails on doors all day. And it was nice to be able to get out onto the field and see how they actually put these things together. And it was instructive because it helped me to know what my product was being used for and how they installed it. So I knew if I was doing my part right so they could do what they were doing correctly. So I got out to this one site. We unloaded the doors, which had been pre manufactured for a specific measurement so we knew it was going to be a perfect fit and sure enough the rails were just the right length to fit in the gap and it was one of those closet doors that hangs on rollers and so you have to install a rail so those rollers slip into that rail and it slides back and forth and the installer got up on a stool and he put the rail in place and he started to run up a screw into the wood behind there and the screw just went went right through the sheetrock, just like it was paper. And he sighed, and he took the rail down, and he said, no wood. <laughs> There's no wood underneath the sheetrock up there. So we had to haul the doors back to the factory, because we couldn't leave them there, because there was no lock on the front door. People could steal them or vandalize them. And he had to call his superintendent so he could get the framers back in there to crawl up into the attic and install a header above where those doors were supposed to be installed because they needed something to support the weight, something of substance. Now it looked great. When we got there, it looked like there was a beautiful space for this closet door. The framers had done a good job. Everything was square and plumb. The sheet rockers had done a great job. Everything was smooth. The finishers had done a perfect job. The painters had come along. So from outward perspectives, this looked like a wonderful closet, but there was no substance it wouldn't have held up under the weight. That is an analogy to kind of point toward what Paul was talking about when he was talking about these inferior building materials of false teaching that was starting to prop up. It was coming into a lot of the different local gatherings of believers, including Corinth. Now, fortunately, there was one really good teacher named Apollos, and I don't want to include him with those because as we looked at earlier, Apollos was actually a teachable guy who was able to be instructed 
he had enough humility to understand that when Aquila and Priscilla invited him into their home and they instructed him further in the whole gospel after Jesus had come on the scene and had died, been buried, resurrected, then Apollos got it and he understood the new deeper significance of baptism, which he had been teaching uh, not in uh, correctly necessarily, but it was not as fulfilled because he only had been teaching the baptism of John. So Apollos was this good guy, and yet there was something going on in the church in Corinth that Paul needed to address. And you can sort of see Paul throughout his letter to Corinth thinking about other places because he had written several letters to different locations. And so we have to try to look at the whole picture from what Paul is painting for us to understand. There were false teachers in different churches, and then there were teachers like Apollos who was a good teacher and was teachable. So I just wanted to be upfront with you so that you don't make the mistake of thinking that Paul was dissing Apollos. That's not the case. So last week, Paul's metaphor of the church or people who make up that church as a building, so to speak, to house the Holy Spirit. We become the temple of God collectively. This week, he's really focusing in then on inferior building materials and he's making sure that we understand that one of those inferior human materials is human wisdom or human philosophy. So listen as I read this passage, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 23. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Stop deceiving yourselves. If you think you're wise by this world's standards, you need to become a fool to be truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. As the scriptures say, he traps the wise in the snare of their own cleverness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He knows that they are worthless. So don't boast about following a particular human leader, for everything belongs to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Peter or the world or life and death or the present and future, everything belongs to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking right now for your spirit's wisdom and guidance. It's obvious from Paul's words that we can't impose our human wisdom on your word and make it say what we want it to say. We want you to speak to us today through your Holy Spirit, illuminating truth, because we know that Jesus is the embodiment of truth. He is the way and the truth and the life, and that every good wisdom in Scripture points to Christ and is built on Christ as the foundation of this temple. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's dive into this passage, shall we? Let's say that I was out on the softball field with our great softball team and all those wonderful fans, and I look at Jeff Briggs, who's one of our players, and I look at him and say, I'm trying to pump up the team, you are a softball team. Now, do you think Jeff is going to look at himself and go, me, I, I'm the softball team? No, he's going to know that I'm speaking to one of the members of the softball team, but I'm referring to a whole group of people because a team is a group. That's what we're talking about. There have been some misinterpretations of the passage that I just read for you. 
because people don't understand that Paul is talking about a group of people. In fact, I like this translation. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in and among you? That comes from the NLT and a little borrowing from the Amplified Version as well, because it captures both of those thoughts, that we together are the temple and the Spirit of God lives, not just individually in us, but among all of us collectively. That's an important context for how we need to see what Paul is talking about. That's the context that lets us know that when he is really angry at people, righteously so, for their dividing people and pulling them apart, and especially for dividing the gospel itself by trying to teach something other than the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which was at the center of all of Paul's teaching at the gospel, that when they're doing those things, they're ripping apart the temple itself, as the way Paul had described it. Some people have misinterpreted this by saying that they're talking about suicide. This, has, this verse has nothing to do with suicide, saying that God will destroy somebody if they take their own life because they're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's a whole other discussion. And we should get into that sometime because it's a good question. But I just want to remove that from the table right now because that's not what this passage is talking about. You're God's temple. There's a Greek word, este, you yourselves, is a plural word. And that's what Paul uses here. And Paul uses his words very carefully. He was a learned man and he knew good Greek vocabulary. He did that on purpose because he's trying to show them that this is a collective process, which is why division was so dangerous because division pulls apart, whereas the gospel itself, built on the foundation of Christ, will always build up on that foundation. Together, you living stones, we see that picture also in Simon Peter's teaching and a couple of other New Testament passages, you who are living stones who have trusted Christ are being formed into that temple to house a holy God. Now, there were some people who were starting to creep into the church with human wisdom, not Apollos, but in other areas. And I looked up some of this this week and realized that there were about four other New Testament letters where Paul actually called people out. And he called them out by name because he said, if you're supposed to beware of certain people, if I said, beware of that perpetrator over there, you'd need to know which perpetrator I was talking about if I said beware. Uh, so Paul calls them out. And I think it's good for us to be able to say, yeah, if somebody's teaching something that's false, it's not unbiblical to call them out and say, this is dangerous. You need to avoid this doctrine or this teaching because it's false. Or if we see somebody who's becoming really famous, who's teaching that, I don't think it's a bad thing to say what he's teaching right now is false teaching and you need to beware. That's what Paul was doing to these folks in Corinth. The leaders were building with human wisdom and they were inferior. It, it was like having no wood above the closet door structure. It might have looked good from the outside, and they might have been able to whip up some frenzy around what they were teaching because it was new and exciting, and people were wanting to flock to this charismatic teacher, but it wouldn't hold up under the weight, and it resulted in division and jealousy. The reason it resulted in division and jealousy is because these people were trying to pump themselves up and make them appear to be the next big thing, the leader that everybody wanted to follow, and unfortunately, some of the people in the church were buying into that. And so they were starting to lean toward wanting to identify with one leader over another leader. And they were proud of the fact that they identified with this leader. They were boasting about that leader. No, I, I follow this guy. And Paul says, uh -uh, stop that. Just stop it. Because it's tearing the unity apart that God had begun to build into the early church, which was an evidence 
of the gospel itself. We'll see that later. So Paul has some strong words here. Verse 17 says, God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. I'm thinking, whoa, Paul. I mean, settle down, dude. You're getting a little bit over the top with this stuff, aren't you? I think we need to unpack that just a little bit because it's important for us to know why he would say something like that. Some teachers were, in fact, deconstructive. They were making it their mission in life to tear apart what Paul had begun to build into the early church. Some of those people were Judaizers in different locations. Those were people who had started to kind of buy into the Christian faith, but they were Jews, and yet they were sort of having some second thoughts and thought, no, we need to be Jewish fully and completely, and we need to make sure that people are converting to complete Judaism, completing all, completing all of the uh, requirements of the law if they're going to be a believer. So they were trying to become very legalistic in their teaching. And Paul says, no, that's deconstructive. You're, you're taking away from what Christ fulfilled because he fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. We're in a new covenant now. That was the old covenant. So Paul was trying to help them understand and differentiate between uh, a belief based on the law, which only reveals that we're imperfect and we can't measure up, and then the New Testament, the new covenant, that says that it's because of God through Christ by faith and his grace, that that's why we're saved. It's not because of all the good works that we could do. We could never really fulfill the law, but Christ fulfilled the law, and then he gives it to us by grace. So if they were intent on destroying, they weren't building up with spiritual wisdom. They were incorporating human wisdom into how they were trying to split apart the people who had begun to be unified around the gospel. There was a guy that I knew 27 years ago, and he began teaching some things that were quite legalistic and founded on human tradition rather than spiritual wisdom and biblical tradition. And he was opposing every change that a specific church was trying to make. And all the changes that they were seeking to make were gospel-centered. Every change they were trying to make were aimed at trying to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ because they wanted to share the love of Christ in such a way that people who didn't know Christ yet would be drawn to him. And yet, because this guy was so legalistic and so focused on what had been done in the past in the methodology, he couldn't see that new methods were needed to reach these people. And so he opposed everything. And the more he opposed it, the more the people were getting frustrated. It began to become pretty apparent that he really wasn't about the gospel. He was about tradition of man, human wisdom, and power and control. And everybody started to see that. So there kind of came a showdown in that church. And in a prayer meeting, this guy left, God's spirit really took over and there was revival that broke out in that church as people's hearts were broken and they returned to in a strong way that were drawn by the spirit of the Lord because that spirit of human wisdom, which was really foolishness according to God, left the building. And when that happened, big things happened. There was a, a season of real revival in that church. First Peter tells us this in First Peter 2, 1. He tells us to rid ourselves of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. And yet, those were exactly the words that describe what that man was all about 27 years ago. Colossians 3, 2 tells us that we're supposed to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. And Paul is trying to point out to these folks in Corinth that human wisdom 
is really grounded in human earthly things. It's all based on the old nature, which has a whole lot more to do with power and control than it does about our releasing control into Christ's hands and being vessels used by him so that the gospel can be propagated. So when there's human wisdom, there's division, and there's strife. We saw that with that fellow 27 years ago. Paul saw it in Corinth, and he's trying to correct that. There's some good correctives for us all throughout this letter to Corinth. Anyone who destroys the temple will be destroyed. Those are pretty harsh words. That can only happen. This is important. That can only happen to somebody who has not been transformed by the gospel. Because if somebody had already invited Christ to save them and to give them his spirit, which he promised, then they would start that transformation process. They would be all about trying to build up the gospel and to build up the church because that's an expression of Jesus to the world. If somebody could make it their mission to tear that apart, they haven't been transformed by that gospel. We can see that in John chapter three. Let me read a little bit of that for you because I think you'll see that somebody who could have that in their intent, in, in their mission statement, I'm gonna destroy this thing, they're not a believer. John 3, 17, God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. There was a contrast that Paul was making, and he was showing that if somebody could make it their mission to destroy the church that was beginning to flourish in first century AD, that person's not saved. And so Paul was calling them out, and he was saying they would be destroyed because of their choice to reject the truth of Jesus Christ. That's the person who would be destroyed. And then there are those who build up. And this is the good news. And this is the stuff that Paul really wanted to fan the flame of those who were building up the church. We were contrasting these false teachers with somebody like Apollos who had a teachable spirit and who was eager to learn more and to fulfill all of his role as a teacher of the truth so that he was using strong materials, those gold, silver, precious gems, the right kind of materials that would stand up under the tests of the fiery trials. And then those false teachers using their human wisdom, all that stuff would be burned up with the wood, hay, and stubble. Apollos and the true teachers were using gold, silver, precious gems. Those were the analogies Paul was trying to use to show people that that which lasts and is beautiful has been refined and made even more beautiful because it's the real McCoy, it's the real thing. Now, here's something interesting. They're kind of some mixed metaphors. I love it when Paul does that. Uh, Paul is kind of a circular reasoner I love reading some of his things, especially in the book of Romans, because he'll circle back around and pick up a point and drive home one of his points, and then he'll go off in a slightly different direction. So it's not really a linear uh, outline when you're reading Paul. It's more like it's sort of like this. And he does that occasionally. And sometimes he'll sort of pick up on one metaphor and add another metaphor to it to kind of mix those metaphors. So in a sense, what we see is that we are living stones, but we're also becoming some of those precious stones that will last. So there are precious stones in the way of the teaching and the gospel, and then there are the, the people who are affected by the gospel. Both are gonna become precious stones. Both are gonna last through the fiery trials 
and both are going to hold up under the weight. Your living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple, 1 Peter 2.5. God transforms us into his image from glory to glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Believers become precious stones, smoothed and polished through sanctification. We've got a member of our church who loves Petoskey stones. They just got back from up north, so I'm curious to know if uh, this person brought back some new Petoskey stones. I hope so. And they look so gorgeous when they've been put in a polisher. And all of you probably are aware of what happens in that. There's this grit that rubs against the stones and it rubs off all the roughness on it and makes it polished and smooth and brilliant. And it brings out the beauty in a stone like that. In a sense, we who are these building stones that God is putting together as a temple are rubbing against the grit in our lives. Sometimes the grit can be each other. Sometimes the grit can be our old nature. Sometimes the grit can be some of that worldly teaching that's trying to creep in and we need to rub against it and rub it away and throw it away. Whatever the grit is in our lives, we need to be aware that we're being polished. We're being smoothed, made beautiful. And we're going to become that kind of stone that lasts through all the fiery trials. And at the end of time, when everything is revealed, all truth is revealed, that which is left, it's going to be beautiful. It's not going to be the wood, hay, and stubble. All of us, along with the good teaching of the gospel, all of us who have been affected by the gospel, we're going to remain as well. And we're going to be beautiful, not because of what we've done, but because of Christ. Isn't that a good thing? The gospel and those transformed by it, the gospel message and the teaching from God's inspired word are lasting building materials. And you and I, if we're believers, are being transformed by these materials. So we're becoming incorruptible and lasting as well. So false teaching would be like putting a concrete roof on popsicle stick pillars. Now, some of us who've been on mission trips to third world countries can attest to the fact that they don't all have building standards like some of the standards and codes that we see in America. And some of those buildings look to me like, man, if there was the slightest earthquake, oh man, things would not go well because they had really shoddy materials holding up literally concrete roofs. It just looked like there's going to be a waffle happening. It's just going to come crashing down and it would not be good at all or safe for the inhabitants. So false teaching is like that. It's building in all the stuff that may look good from the outside, not going to hold up under the weight. Paul's strong words are saying, stop deceiving yourselves. If you think you're wise by this world's standards, if you're measuring your wisdom by what you're seeing all around you in the world, you need to become a fool to be truly wise. And he means that the world thinks that God's wisdom is foolishness. It's actually reversed. The wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. So we need to be like a fool and be willing to be a fool for Christ. Let others think that we're a fool, but I'm going to follow Christ. As the scriptures say, he traps the wise in the snare of their own cleverness. And that's Paul quoting from the Old Testament from Job. And he says again, another quote, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. He knows they're worthless. It's another quote, this time from Psalm 9411. The people who thought they were wise were actually worthless because they were destroying the temple God had been building. So anybody who can quote all the wisdom of the philosophers of this world and yet be destroying that which Christ had started to build up as the foundation, nah, they're the ones who are worthless. That's the wood, hay, and stubble. And then verses 21 and 22. So don't boast about following a particular human leader, for everything belongs to you, 
whether Paul or Apollos or Peter, or in some translations, Cephas, which is the Greek name for Peter, or the world or life and death or the present and the future, everything belongs to you. And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. You know what this puts me in mind of? As I read that, my mind went instantly to the story of the prodigal son, which Jesus talked about. In Luke 15, there was the brother who stayed home. He was the responsible brother. He made all the right decisions. He was working hard to help with the family business, what, whatever that might have been. And then there was this other brother who squandered. He ran away. He demanded his father's inheritance, even though the father wasn't dead yet. And he went off and squandered that in loose living. And then when he finally came to his senses, he came home again. And the older brother was angry because the father threw a party for the son who had come home. So the father says to the responsible son who was angry because the father had accepted this wayward son back when the wayward son returned, he says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. I could almost feel Paul thinking about that. I don't know if he was or not. I certainly thought about it. I can't help but wonder if maybe Paul thought about that as well. I think it's good to connect those two things because it puts us in mind of the heart of our loving father to think, dude, Everything I have is yours. Everything that I've made for you is for your benefit if you'll walk in my ways. And so everything is yours. And all these teachers that I've given you as a gift to the body of Christ, they're all there for your benefit. Why are you picking one over the other? They're all for your benefit. Enjoy the teaching from all of them. You might find a different perspective from one. Maybe one has a different background. Maybe somebody comes from a different culture. You'll, you'll learn some things from that person learn from what they have to bring you. As long as they're all focused on the same thing, which is the gospel, no problems. There's no division here. The gospel is what unites us. Stay united around the gospel. So Paul's meaning here, if you belong to Christ, there's no need to be envious or divisive or possessive. That goes by the wayside. That's human wisdom. And we can jettison that. All these teachers are available to help you be built into the temple. Don't choose one over the other. Appreciate them all. Learn from them all because they're all teaching the gospel, building on that firm foundation. There's unity around the gospel, around love for one another, around evidence of good building material, which is being displayed to the world because people can see that and think, yeah, I don't see a lot of that happening in the world or on the job where I work today. I, I want some more of that. How do you get that? That's what we want to, to display to the world that's watching. So what's this brick's purpose? In a Lego brick, do you display one Lego brick and say, isn't this a work of art? That's an incredible brick. This is the best brick ever. And I have it displayed prominently on a cabinet in my living room. Kind of silly, right? I mean, the brick's purpose is to be put alongside or among or with, connected to a lot of other bricks to make a temple. Now, this is in Legoland, which is an amazing place because you can walk through the whole park and see these huge buildings built out of a whole bunch of these Lego bricks. Now, there's never any one label on one brick in there that says, I'm the best brick. This is the best brick in the whole temple. Doesn't work that way. Silly. That would be silly. And none of these teachers that are teaching the truth about the gospel would want that to be said about themselves. I'm sure that the true teachers, even people like Apollos and Paul and Peter, They'd be quick to say, we're just one brick among many, but the gospel is what we're about. Don't pick one over another. Let me end with this. I'm going to wrap up. 
there were a couple of celebrations that really seemed very different from one another. The first celebration revealed to me the same kind of spirit that Paul was talking about, a spirit of humility, a spirit of purpose, a spirit of soberness around the things that were serious enough that we need to be sober about. And I heard about this because uh, I was reading up a little bit about VJ Day coming up in August, just next month, on August 15th, in fact. It'll be the 75th anniversary of Victory in Japan Day in which uh, an armistice agreement was signed, which sort of signaled the end of World War II. Of course, there are several things. It was a process, so it wasn't immediate, but they wanted to celebrate on one particular day what signaled the end of that war. And so VJ Day became that celebration. Well, there was a radio program called Command Performance, and it was recorded one day after VJ Day. And it was really well produced. And it was really neat because that's been preserved and archived, and I got to listen to that. And it was an amazing thing to listen to what people were thinking about way back there, 75 years ago, after this huge cataclysmic worldwide event. There was not the kind of celebration that you might expect on this program, in fact. Bing Crosby actually opened the program, and he said, what can you say at a time like this? You can't just throw your hat in the air. That's for run-of-the-mill holidays. I guess all anybody can do is thank God the war is over. And that sort of set the tone. Everybody else on that program seemed to have a sober awareness that lives had been lost, that there was a huge ideology at stake, that this was a hard-fought war, and it was not something that we wanted to be glibly celebrating and saying, our team won, woohoo! There was sort of settling in on everybody, the idea that now we've got some rebuilding to do. This is just the beginning. It's really not the end of something, but hopefully it's the beginning of a new era. Let's forge something around the freedoms that we stand for, and let's help other countries rebuild and help them find freedom the way we found freedoms. And there was one young man that they interviewed that I thought was really indicative of this spirit. A radio interviewer put a microphone up to this guy. He had lots of bars on his uniform, and it indicated that he had been in the war for quite a while, like two and a half years, and he'd been in some of the roughest uh, theaters of war that you can imagine. And they said, and what's your name, son? And this soldier said, oh, that's not important. You just need to know that I'm one member of the mightiest military force in the world, and we stand for freedom. It was so humble. He didn't try to puff his chest up. He didn't say, here, spell my name correctly. He said, that's not important. I'm one of many. He was a brick among a whole bunch of other bricks, but they existed for a purpose that was far greater than any one of them. So that was the first celebration. And then there's a second celebration. And that was something that you could find on any television station back when we had these things called sports and football games that were going on. And you could see that somebody would tackle another football player who had only made it two yards from the line of scrimmage, only making a two yard gain. But as is so common these days, the one that made the tackle would stand up and puff his chest out and do a little victory dance toward the camera that lingers on him to show how strong and tough and mighty he was. The guy made it two yards. Compare that with the kind of celebration that we saw after VJ Day, 
and you get a little bit of a comparison, an analogy to what Paul was talking about. The world's wisdom is let's celebrate these leaders who are, who are charismatic and can say, my team wins and my team's better. And we're teaching something that's exciting. And we're drawing lots of people and following my way of thinking or following this philosophy. And then you get somebody who says, now we all just stand for the gospel. Our names don't matter. I don't even care if my name goes down in any kind of a history book. We just want people to build up Christ. We want to make Christ famous. He's the one we need to be talking about. He's the firm foundation. Let's build with the inspired word of God with good building materials that are going to last rather than puffing up our chests over a simple, silly two-yard game. Paul's words may seem harsh when he's talking about people being destroyed for destroying that, that temple, but they're necessary. He knew that the world's wisdom is foolishness to God and that God's wisdom is foolishness to the world. It's a flip-flop. Interesting story as I wind up with this wonderful analogy to the church. I read something about a concert that took place three years ago in 2017. In Philadelphia, budget cuts had made it difficult for the music program in a lot of the schools in that area. And there was a whole gymnasium just piled up with broken instruments because they didn't have enough money to send them to the shop to be repaired. A lot of these instruments there. Somebody got the bright idea that they were going to compose a symphony for broken instruments. And you know what they called it? Symphony for Broken Instruments. <laughs> this guy, David Lang, who's also a Pulitzer Prize winner, writer, composed the Symphony for Broken Instruments, and then he enlisted the aid of approximately 400 musicians in the Philadelphia area. It was regional. They came together, repaired a thousand of those broken instruments, and then promoted and performed this symphony. It was beautiful on so many levels. For one thing, you could see something about the beauty of redemption in these broken instruments that were destined for the rubbish heap or a landfill, and yet they got redeemed for their original purpose. And what made it even sweeter was that the music that they were making together was also beautiful. And it was more beautiful because they were making that music together. You see so many levels that to me represents exactly what the church is about. And I think that reflects what Paul was talking about as he's trying to just aim at unity and to shun false teaching that would create division. We're all a bunch of broken instruments. There's not a one of us who doesn't deserve to be sent to the rubbish heap. And yet God, through his son, made a way to redeem each of us for our original purpose. And when we're collected together, and we're making beautiful music, especially when it uplifts Jesus Christ. There's something really sweet and really beautiful about that kind of unity. Because even the sweet music that we're making together is a witness to a watching world that there's something transcendent and bigger than all of us. We don't care who gets named in that case. We're just one among many making beautiful music to the one who redeems us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that we have been set apart, we believers, for specific purposes, and we're being built into the dwelling place for you. We pray for the kind of unity that you have for us based on love and humility, forgiveness, selflessness, 
may we become the kind of sweet music, not just to your ears, but the kind of music being played out through our unity so that a watching world will be drawn to that and they would find it amazing and beautiful and that they would want to join in the symphony. Help us to live that way, not because we're worth anything in ourselves, but because we have been redeemed. Thank you, Father, for redeeming lost people and turning them into a beautiful symphony for your purposes. I pray in Jesus' name.